Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Here are your hosts, Julie Fudge-Smith and Colleen Pilar. Welcome back to Your Family Dog. Uh, I'm Julie Smith, and I'm here with Colleen Pilar. And today, we're going to talk about resiliency and what that means. So, Colleen, you have refocused your business into helping build resiliency or helping animal professionals such as vets and vet techs and shelter workers build resiliency in their own life and prevent some burnout and other problems that are pretty rampant in the pet professional business. So how do you see resiliency in dogs? How do you see building resiliency in people and how does that relate to dogs? Well, as you and I have said so many times over the years, everything in the world relates to dog training and resilience does also. (laughs) Um, So a lot of really good dog training techniques are factors in resilience, but also just theories and philosophies matter too. So if I could just start with like a basic overview of human happiness, 50% of your happiness is based on genetic components. Nothing you can do to change it. It's what you've got inside you. 10% of your happiness is based on your circumstances. So it might, it might have to do with where you live or, or some of those things, um, what you earn. And then 40% of your happiness is based on your thoughts, feelings, and actions. So that's where we've got all the wiggle room to play with. And when we're talking about dogs and dog training, we're always talking about shaping their thoughts, feelings, and actions. We're teaching them, this is really fun. This is what you'd like to do. This is an exciting opportunity that you get rewarded for. And one of the big issues in developing resilience is that you need to feel safe to experiment. You need to give yourself Mm -hmm. permission to try new things and to maybe not be very good at it at first. Mm -hmm. And that is something that as dog trainers, we're always trying to do for our clients is to say, you don't have to be good at dog training to be able to train your dog. You'll get better at dog training and your dog will get better as you learn. And that's a resilience component of helping them feel that that they can do this. So from the dog perspective, it matters so much the methods that we use. Because if we teach our dog that a mistake will, will be followed by a punishment, that does not help them become bold learners. It does not help them make a mistake and know that next time I'll do better. That's right. a key, key challenge in resilience. Yes. Uh, and I can see that if, if a dog, um, and you can see that even um, in, in kids and people, just think about mm-hmm. when, um, for example, I, um, when I was a kid and we were walking through um, Boston and I was like seven years old and a pigeon fell off a roof and landed splat in front of me. Um, mm-hmm. I took me years to go back to Boston you know, mm-hmm. and have to want to walk down that street because it was such a dramatic punishment for walking down the street was to have this pigeon commit suicide in front of me. Um, so that's kind of a, an odd example. But I think we all have examples of when something happened to us and it's like, I am never doing that again. I am right. never, ever doing that again because I'll be darned if I'm going to be scared or humiliated or whatever in that way. And so, yes. and that's single trial learning too, yes. which happens so much more easily with negative experiences. Absolutely. You know, if something happens and it goes bad once, your brain goes, that is important. We don't do that again. And if something happens and it goes great once, you're like, well, that was a lovely fluke. 
but you don't say, well, I'm going to do that every day because it happened great once. Um, so the negative experiences are far more profound in our brain, which is great from an evolutionary perspective, right. but not so right. great for resilience and happiness. Right. Well, like our, our Hudson, when he was, I don't know, five months old and the baby gate fell down behind mm-hmm. him and it never touched him, but it crashed to the ground and he was uncomfortable around baby gates for the rest of his life. And it didn't matter how much cheese we paired with that baby gate or Emma or whatever. It was just like, you know, they they are out to get retrievers. And you could never convince him otherwise. I mean, he got to the point where we could, it was great in some ways, because I could put up a baby gate. No, I didn't have to latch it in. I just had to set it there and Hudson was going to stay in that room. (laughs) But nonetheless, um, it was a single event learning. Yes. So if, if we want to avoid single event learning, which we can't, stuff like that just happens. And you, you know, our brains are wired. But if we do want to, build resiliency in our dogs or in ourselves um and punishment doesn't work what does work to build resiliency well the the big key is being curious and willing to explore and what's fascinating is in people children are extremely curious and willing to explore and the older we get as people many of us decide there's a right way to do things And we either know it or we're going to find it, but we're not like curious and dabbling. We're not going, huh, I wonder if this, I wonder if that. And with dog training, one of our goals is always to set up the environment so that the dog can't make a big mistake, but -hmm. that the dog can make some small mistakes so that there's always an opportunity to say this or that, this or that, and reward this. We love this. That, it's kind of neutral. Nothing, nothing really happens, good or bad. But this, good stuff happens. Do this. Um, and if we've controlled the environment well so that the dog can't make a big mistake, um, we, we don't get a, a transgression in which the environment rewards the dog. For example, say running out the front door and racing through the neighborhood and having a blast while we chase behind them. Dog might think that was hugely reinforcing. We don't want that. Um, <laughs> But if if we're like practicing at the door and we've got something set up so that even if the dog were to bolt through the door, they can't get past the front porch because we've created a barrier right. there. That's a small mistake. So we were able to practice right here without ever having something big. But what happens is by not having any negative component associated with it, the dog feels like it's a big game. Well, mm-hmm. if it's a big game, that makes you willing to try, willing to say, well, interesting. What What about that? Well, that doesn't matter in just that moment. It carries over. So the more your dog feels comfortable about, um, first off, the relationship with you, that's huge, but Mm -hmm. just the world in general, feeling safe in the world, they're more willing to enter someone else's living room, for example, or they're Mm -hmm. more willing to say, oh my gosh, that's a train. I've never seen a train before, but I've seen buses and I've seen cars and probably that's okay too. So that's, that's a piece of resilience. Right. Well, I think also too, one of the things you, a key point you made a couple of times I'd like to reemphasize is the idea of safety, that safety learning happens best when you feel safe. And I think we all feel that way. I know Mm -hmm. that um, when I am stuck in a social situation that is uncomfortable to me, right. I'm out at, at a cocktail party and I know no one except my husband not necessarily feeling as safe as I would when I'm out with my brothers and sister and, and family. 
And so I find myself a bit more guarded in the way in which I interact with people because it doesn't feel the same. I don't know these people. How are they going to react to me? And so, you know, I tend to shut down a bit more and it, and it takes more effort for me to be outgoing and sort of just, okay, I am who I am. This is it folks. You know, this is all you, this is what you get, like it or not. Um, <laughs> then I am when I'm in a, in a, in a situation where, um, I, I'm emotionally safe as mm-hmm. well as physically safe. And I think that's something that we need to think about too. It's not just physical safety. It's emotional and mental right. safety as well. And our dogs need that. Our dogs need our dogs to see too. that um, this is this is a cool place to be. The world is pretty good. And and I have my person here so that even if we're going out into the world that I don't know, I still have my emotional support system here. And I think she's got a bait bag full of treats. So mm-hmm. that's also – it was funny. The other day I was out walking with Zuzu, and I ran into a couple with uh, two elderly Portuguese water dogs. And she said, oh, are you training? Because she saw my bait bag. And I said, well, I, I am a trainer. I said, no, we're not really a training walk. I said, I don't go anywhere without my treats. She said, oh, that's a great idea. She said, I should do that. I said, because the thing that I feel is that I may not need them, but I'm sure happy when I have them. Mm-hmm. And it's another way to get your dog to feel safe because yeah. it's they can turn and like, this is a little uncomfortable. <laughs> that dog has given me, you know, the evil eye, mom. Well, then you need to look at me. And in fact, that happened the other day. And a, a few days later, we were walking and these two dogs were coming at us down the sidewalk. And one of them started barking and snarling. So Zuzu and I just walked into somebody's yard and I had her face me with her back to the dogs and just fed her treats as the snarling dogs slowly, ever so slowly, mm-hmm. walked by and down the street. But Zuzu didn't care because liver was happening. Right. And so that's that's a great example of, of kind of building resilience because she'll be better able to handle that the next time because she's survived it once, which is true for all of us. Right. Yes. Once we get through something, we're like, well, that was terrifying and I don't want to do it again. But I could now. I know I could if yeah. I had to get through that again. Um, and and you were bringing up the emotional state piece. And in terms of the brain, the emotional component is deeper and uh, more primitive than our rational thinking. And the fact of the matter is we are wired so that everything moves toward emotion first. Mm -hmm. And then we put rational stuff on top of it. And our dogs have limited rational um, processes compared to humans. And that sometimes can be helpful for us to realize that we as humans are driven by our emotions all the time, all the time. And here we are with these great big, fancy brains. Um, And so when our dogs are being driven by emotions and we're saying things like, that's ridiculous. Those dogs are making faces at you, but they're not going to hurt you. They're on leashes. You're on leashes. That's not how our dogs are feeling. They're not thinking (laughs) through the situation and going, oh, the variables here are that I'm emotionally unsafe, but physically I'm fine. Uh, No. (laughs) Nope. No. And if anybody knew Zuzu. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, the more we can think about the the fact that emotions drive behavior, human and canine, the more we're aware of that and can notice and identify the emotion. What emotion mm-hmm. are we experiencing here? And then learn to navigate it, the more helpful it will be. And having some strategies for that to help our dogs feel safe and comfortable so that they can uh, expand their behavior 
is really, really helpful. So so one of the downsides that, that we mentioned before on some of the more force-based training methods are that they typically don't teach a dog what to do. Right. They teach a dog what not to do. So if I were to decide that I really don't want you to ever wear yellow, and every time I see you, if you're not wearing yellow, I do nothing, and if you are wearing yellow, I smack you, you will not know what is up with me because you'll be like, sometimes Colleen is just crazy and other times she's neutral, but I never really feel so totally safe around her because I don't know what's going on. Right. Well, you're not going to be very resilient. We're, we're not going to be friends. That's for sure. <laughs> um, that's right. And we think we make those things clear for dogs. We think that we're saying, you know, well, we give a correction when he lunges at oh. the end of the leash or when he barks at the UPS guy. But from the dog's perspective, it could be because he's wearing yellow. You know, he just doesn't know exactly why this Correct. moment is different than that moment. And it just suppresses behavior, which doesn't teach. It doesn't tell us what to do next. Right. Well, it reminds me a little bit of when we were talking about um, the Electric Friends episode, which we'll have a link to when we were talking mm -hmm. with, with Dr. Sin. And, and she was saying, you know, the problem with an electric fence is that the dog is the shock. Now, he doesn't, how is he supposed to know it's because I'm in this, I'm at the edge, of, it's, mm -hmm. it's the flag. I may not be looking at the flag. I might be looking at the little boy across the street. Mm -hmm. And so I now associate the shock with a little boy rather than with a boundary. And because you cannot tell exactly what it is the dog is learning, you don't know what the reaction is going to be. I remember I used to, um, with my kids, um, I would say, you know, instead of saying, have you learned your lesson, which is what people always said to me, I always would ask them, what lesson did you learn? Mm -hmm. Because it may not have been the lesson I was trying to teach. <laughs> yes. But we can't ask our dogs that. No. And so we have to try and set them up for success. And I think the, the other thing is, um, you know, we also, I think, fail to appreciate, if we fail to appreciate fear or anxiety or frustration, or I don't know if dogs really feel anger, but I know they feel anxious and frustrated and, and scared. We also sometimes fail to see their joyful times too, that dogs yes. do experience joy. And so, you know, but yet, you know, our dog is crazy and running around the yard and having a good time and we're yelling at them. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes wonder if suppression of their happy times doesn't perhaps force some of those more negative emotions to the surface. Yes. And that leads beautifully into another key component of resilience, which is recognizing that we are brains inside of bodies and we need to do what we can to, um, meet those needs. So self-care is like the big buzzword these days. But the fact is, if your dog doesn't have enough rest, adequate nutrition, plenty of access to water, opportunities to play, social connection and companionship, your dog won't be very resilient. And guess what? If you don't have those things, you won't be either. You know, so when we're saying, um, you know, I've been working nonstop, I've been busy on this huge project for weeks and I barely have time and I don't have time to walk my dog. Well, you're not showing a whole lot of resiliency and probably your dog is going to be a bit frayed, too, in this state. And you're thinking, well, he's just been sleeping all day. And what, you know, what's his problem? His life is easy. He's just hanging out on the couch. No, his life hasn't been easy because 
you aren't coming home at your best self either. Right. And you might not even be coming home as much. Yeah. You know, yeah. And then someone else is coming in to let him out, which is a stressor. Even, even if it's a nice, kind, reputable person, it's a change. It is a change. And if your dog is more resilient, they're awesome. And if your dog is less resilient, that's a bigger stressor. Yeah. And, and, and that compiled over time. Mm -hmm. Um, Dogs begin. uh, I was just talking to, um, who was I talking to? I don't know. I, 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 you'd think I would know, since I don't know that many people here in, in Princeton, that I would remember who it was I was talking to, but I don't. <laughs> um, I think it was an acupuncturist. And we were talking about stress. And what I was saying is is that stress comes out. It will come out. If you are mm-hmm. building these stressors up and you're, in, you're building up this emotional reservoir of negative experiences or whatever – they are going to come out and they are maybe not going to come out directly. They may come out sideways. So your wonderful dog who sleeps all day on the couch, but this has gone on for two weeks may start urinating behind the couch. Mm -hmm. And it's not because we've lost our house training. It's because um, one of the reactions to stress is to relieve bowels and bladders and I have to do it somewhere. And this comes out sideways. And so when I'm talking to clients, I will oftentimes ask, have there been any you know, major changes in your routine? Mm-hmm. Things like this. Because I don't want to launch on some huge behavior modification program or some huge house training program when what we're talking about is you know, a, a stress level in your dog and maybe yeah. a UTI from having to hold it too long. But nonetheless, um, I, I think that we need to recognize the fact that, that stress will come out and it will come out in people too in a variety right. of ways. Absolutely. And so when we're trying to develop resilience in dogs, um, in in the early days with your dog, whether a puppy or an adult, having a predictable routine is great, but having a rigid routine is bad. Right. So that if you always, always, always walk the dog at this time and feed the dog at that time, then you're creating stress on that day that you can't. Um, so having you know, the routine is sort of like we get up and we go for a walk and then you get breakfast and then you have your belly rub and then you have your nap. <laughs> that doesn't matter so much if it's at 6.15 or 9.15. <laughs> right. That's a resilience component. But we can predict what will happen next. We know what's going to happen next. After this comes that. Um, and so so everything I've always said one of my big downsides is that I'm just the world is full of gray areas and I'm not the expert on anything because I'm always like, well, in this case or it depends and when. Um, So I think dogs love having a routine. I think it's a really bad idea to have a rigid routine. And so having that from the concept of resilience, I want my dog to feel safe and to know what is likely to happen. And I want the dog to like everything that is likely to happen. So just because you You know, I want the dog to know that you typically come home around this time. And when you come home, you're happy to see them. (laughs) These are things that help. (laughs) Um, And we have to be thinking from the perspective of what is going to give our dog the broadest definition of normal and comfortable. So Mm -hmm. puppies define normal in their first four and a half months. And if you have a puppy that had a very impoverished upbringing, they don't know really common things like what does a microwave sound like or open stairs. Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. And some of these things that can matter and will affect the later trajectory of this dog's development. Um, 
we we hope that they have a really lovely broad definition of normal in their puppyhood. And so when we're helping a dog with resilience, some things matter what happened before, what came before. And earlier when I was talking about happiness factors in humans, genetics is a big component of that. And it is in dogs as well. And circumstances is a big component. And the circumstances would play into this example here with the puppy, with the impoverished background. I have a dog um, currently who I adore, and so I adore him, um, and I, I don't know his history. My, my best guess, as a professional trainer of many years of experience, is that he had a very impoverished background, and I also think he probably had shock collar training, because his default behavior when something stressful happens is he absolutely freezes. He's complete lack of behavior. He doesn't move out of situations. He just freezes. Um, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. And it's a subtle difference between standing and enjoying and standing and not enjoying for someone who doesn't understand. Um, that affects brain chemistry. That affects brain sure wiring. Does. Sure it's does. a tough thing. And he is not a dog who could have safely lived in my home when my children were little because he has such poor coping skills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at with, because my kids were bigger when we got him and now my kids don't live at home. He's thrilled um, <laughs> that that's made a difference for him. But his his ability to stretch is smaller than than mm-hmm. other dogs I've had in my life. And I love him every bit as much as any other dog I've ever had. And I have not, even as a professional trainer, been able to give him the level of stretch and bounce back that I wish he could have because it it hurts his life. It hurts the quality of his life. And that makes me sad. Right. But there's just so much one can do to recover the damage of a lost of a lost puppyhood. Um, There's also genetics, you know, Mm -hmm. um, some dogs are just born with a bit more resiliency or adaptability than others. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, all these factors play into what kind of an adult dog you're going to have. And so, but I, I also think too, that that combination of not only have having a, an impoverished puppyhood, which we had a dog that had a very impoverished puppyhood without a lot of socialization, human interaction, you know, positive things mm-hmm. happening may not have been abuse. It was, I, I don't think it, there was an abuse in Molly's case. I think it was just negligence and impoverishment. Um, but if you combine that with positive punishment, right, then you're just exacerbating an already difficult situation and perhaps even more limiting and narrowing the adaptability, flexibility, resiliency of any Absolutely. given individual human, canine, feline, or equine. Yeah. Which ties right back into your point previously about that stress will always come out. So mm -hmm. when we're suppressing and suppressing and suppressing, I always use the volcano example. Like nothing moves on the mountain. The mountain is still. We're good. Mountain, 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 mountain. Oh, a little bit of steam. Still no movement, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And we're suppressing, we're suppressing, and then all of a sudden we're shocked and stunned that building beneath the surface was all of this lava. And <laughs> so if there's aggression or any sort of big behavioral change, often it comes out of the blue. 
suddenly without warning. And when we take a behavioral history, we can see that it's neither out of the blue nor suddenly without warning. It's often a case of stressors not being addressed and a dog not having the resilience to deal with the stresses that were part of this dog's life. Which is another reason why you and I talk about dog body language as much as we mm-hmm. do. Because one of the ways in which you can begin to recognize when stresses are happening in your dog's life is if you understand what your dog is telling you so that you can move in more quickly. If you begin to see the beginning stressors, like if Zuzu starts licking her lips, I'm like, okay, something's going on. We need to pay attention. You know, she may lick her lip a couple of times and then we move on. But I know that that's one of her initial stress signals. And so when I was thinking about Edzo freezing, one of the problems I think people, one of the mistakes that people make is they think that, that, and we've talked about this, that the lack of behavior is good behavior. And so if Edzo freezes and he's not doing anything, he's being a good dog. But Mm -hmm. you and I see it as, wow, there's something going on. He's, He's highly stressed. And if I don't act to help him, he may have to move to whatever his next level may be. And so I think body yeah. language and is... And in fact, let me interrupt there for sure. one sec. Um, I I am not a fan of clipping nails. There's my little dirty secret. So I take him to get his nails done. And recently I took him and he was completely still for the groomer as the groomer was clipping the nails. And he said, wow, he's so good. It's so nice to work with a dog who's really good getting his nails done. And I thought oh my gosh, you are in such danger with dogs every day if you think that this dog is good. Good. Because everything about his behavior said to me, I am in a lot of stress and I want this done quickly and we need to get the heck out of here. Um, But this other person who was a pet professional didn't see it that way. He saw good. He saw what a good dog. And I thought that was terrifying. It is because what what you've now done is you've now put not only the dog at risk of escalating in order to make his point, like, I I need you to back off, but you're also putting people at risk and for, for something that could, could go South very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, body language is incredibly important to understanding stressors and to be able to provide for your dog that safe, happy, comfortable, emotionally stable environment so that if something wonky happens like a gate falls over or another dog comes flying by this is just a blip on the radar screen this is not you know mayday you know this is not a drill this is not a drill we don't want our dogs (laughs) going into mayday every time something happens we want them to think oh this is a drill so Mm -hmm. yeah pearl harbor does not need to happen in my household on a daily basis so (laughs) And unusual things will happen in the average house at least once a week. Something where we all go, well, that was weird. You know, something falls off a (laughs) shelf that you didn't expect or a hornet comes flying in my living room last night. You know, what, where, where did that come from? Just all of a sudden, something odd will happen. And the more your dog can go, that was weird, the better off you are. Absolutely. Because if your dog goes mayday, mayday, um, that's really important. And another thing Yes, from the from the perspective of resilience, the brain is designed to solve problems related to survival in an outdoor environment in nearly constant motion. So that is not that far from 
from like how we think of dogs, you know, like they just play and they're always moving. Their problems are not related to survival. They are fed, they are cared for, all that. But there's a lot of motion in all in all of these pieces. Human brains, same thing. Our brains are evolved to solve problems related to survival in nearly constant motion in an outdoor environment. For both humans and dogs, we have detached from the reality of the survival piece and our brains are still scanning for, is that okay? Is that okay? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. And the brain isn't really good at evaluating um, the reality the, you know, whether that's a real risk. So you talked before about going to a, like a, a networking mingling kind of party where you don't know anyone except your husband, your brain is going, this is bad. <laughs> You're not going to die. There's nothing dangerous there. You know, a baby gate falls over in a house and Hudson goes barreling out of the room. He's not going to die. There's nothing dangerous there. But the brain goes, this is bad. And it holds that memory and our body reacts as if it's life and death. Right. Our body reacts that way. And so just because we understand it isn't life and death doesn't mean that our bodies aren't responding as if it is. So I think people get mad at their dogs sometimes for reacting as if something was life and death when it wasn't. For example, a squirrel in the yard and the dog goes, intruder alert, intruder alert, intruder alert. And we're like, ah, it's a squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> The dog's body is not processing that in the same way. But the greater resilience your dog has, the more likely your dog is to be like, hey, cool, squirrel. Right. <laughs> lower resilience, more likely to go on full on alert. Right. Which is another reason why food is so critical in all this, mm -hmm. in this training. Because, uh, for example, where we're living in Princeton, we have some people that live up upstairs. And when they come home, if they come in through the through the door, through the front door, there are some times when Zuzu's like, did you know there's somebody at the front? Mm -hmm. And I can say, hey, Zuzu, that's enough. But if I cost a couple of treats, it's kind of like, thank you for learning me. Have a couple treats. Refocus. And you can't. Well, what? It's much harder to be barking at the entrance of the neighbors when you're chewing on a piece of kibble. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, is that there is something about the act of eating that begins to yes. release endorphins and begins yes. to calm you down and refocus you. It's really, right. really hard to be excited about peanut butter and mm -hmm. upset about the neighbors coming home. Exactly. So sympathetic nervous system is the high alert, the gas, the, oh my gosh, let me do something. And the parasympathetic nervous system is the brakes, the slow everything down. And that's why sometimes when your dog is all excited and you offer them food and they won't take it, it's because they're too high on the sympathetic nervous system right. side. When you were just talking about that, though, it reminded me of children's book that is so awesome that if any of our listeners have little kids, they have to get it. And even if you don't have little kids, you probably have to get it. It's called Three Stories You Can Read to oh. Your Dog. Yeah. <laughs> I think we talked about and that we will in our link literary. to it in the show yes. notes because they just make me laugh. <laughs> so just every library in the in the country should be putting holds on three stories you can read to your dog because they're awesome. <laughs> They are awesome. They are awesome. And um, yeah, we, we have, I think, three copies or something, two, three copies. And um, I love that book. In fact, I think we talked about that in our literary book um, episode. So I will do a link to that as well. So you, I, you know what? We might have. Yeah, I think we did. But yes. We might have. But that was a while ago. So it's well worth mentioning again. 
It's a, it, yes. it is a terrific book. And it, it just I, I love it because if nothing else, it's just it's the, the guy who wrote it obviously was inside the mind a woman, of his, isn't it? Is it a woman? Well, the person I, I want to say the woman's name is Sarah something, but I might be making that up. I don't know. <laughs> the person Sorry. who wrote the book <laughs> obviously was able to get inside the mind of the dog. Mm-hmm. And really express clearly how dogs, how we, we think dogs see things, how dogs see people at the door and how people, a dog's view bearing a bone. It's, it's really, um, if nothing else, it's, it's, it's a great learning experience for how your dog is perceiving his, his or her world. So Sarah Swan Miller. It's okay. so fun. It is so fun. It's, it's very fun. You should, you should read it. Um, so so just coming back to do a little quick recap for us on resilience, um, bodies matter. So meeting physical needs matters a lot, mm-hmm. but physical safety isn't enough. We need emotional safety too. And emotional safety is trickier. We have to be very conscious of what's happening in an environment and sometimes what happened in the past to help your dog really know that it's okay to experiment a little and to take some chances and to make some choices and to know that really all of those things are safe. There there aren't any bad things here. There are just some things that are really good. And then there are other things, but there are no bad things. Really good and other is, is a really nice way for a dog to live. So from that perspective, really being very conscious of, of meeting your dog's mental, physical, emotional, and social needs is how we're going to build resilience and really help our dogs have happy, happy lives. That's right. And that is a wonderful summary. Thank you, Colleen. And we'll see you all next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Colleen and Julie would love to hear them. Call 614-349-1661 or visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.